We're going to talk this time as we come to really begin to launch into the Gospel of John about the deity of Jesus Christ. Some of you have perhaps struggled with the deity of Jesus Christ, perhaps just simply wanting to know where the Bible teaches it. Some of you are wondering in your own hearts if Jesus really is God. May I say to you in the very beginning here, you better find out fast whether or not Jesus is God because that belief will determine whether or not you go to heaven. If you do not believe right now as you sit here that Jesus is God, but you consider yourself a Christian and you think Jesus is something less than God come in the flesh, I have to tell you, this Bible study will show you clear once and for all that only those that believe Jesus is God come in the flesh are going to heaven. So I say it again, if you don't believe that as you sit here, but you consider yourself a Christian, you're not a Christian. You're not going to heaven at this point in time, something is going to have to change. And it's going to have to be your belief in who Jesus is. So we're coming to talk about the true gospel in a sense. We're coming to talk about the content of what John has here in his gospel. We're coming to talk about the deity of Jesus Christ and how important that is. Now we began last time with an introduction to this great writing that John has given to us talked about the fact that John's gospel is unique because he omits what the others record in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And he also records what the others omit. So what you don't find in their gospels, you will find in John's gospels. John's gospel is very interesting. It is very fascinating and it is very deep. I told you last time that his language is very, very simple. In fact, his Greek is basically the equivalent of a seven-year-old child who would speak Greek. His uh, vocabulary is very small, somewhere between six and seven hundred words, and yet in the simplest possible terms, he takes us to the very depths of God, the very depths of fellowship with God and the knowledge of God. By the time John sat down to pen this gospel, all of his contemporaries were dead. Just about all, if not all, of the Bible, the New Testament Bible, had been written and finished. They were all gone, all of the other disciples, Paul the Apostle, and John living on. At that point was then, of all human beings living on the earth, the man who knew and understood Jesus Christ to the very fullest. He had plumbed the depths of the knowledge of God. When he wrote in his first epistle concerning children, young men, and fathers, he referred to the children who had just been born into the kingdom and all they knew is that God was their father now. He referred to the young men, those that had come to learn how to overcome the wicked one. Those that had just really began to understand what walking with God and battling the devil is all about and were gaining victories. And then he said, some of you are fathers, those that have plumbed the depths of the knowledge of God. I don't know how many fathers I know in the faith, but I do know this. I am not one. I hope to be one as I continue to grow in Christ. But I do know that John, by the time he wrote this, was a full-blown father in the faith. And he has recorded for us some of the most profound things ever to be uttered in all of the Bible. None of the other gospel writers has given us such full statements, for example, about the deity of Jesus Christ, or about the work of the Holy Spirit, or about the privileges of believers. That is not to say they didn't mention these things, but John brings them right out on the surface. You continuously bump into them as you go through his gospel. Let's read over the first five verses here. That is not to imply we will cover them all. But let's read over them so we have them in mind. Verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. I think we do well to remember that these are the words of an eyewitness. This is not a man who went to some established school of theology and studied and got his degree. This is not a man who spent hours and hours and hours studying his Greek. As I said to you, he has a very simple vocabulary. This is a man who is an ex-fisherman, a very simple man who grew up on the lake, on Galilee. It's not even that big of a lake. He is a man who grew up, lived his life in a very small area for the most part, coming up. Jesus called him from the vocation of catching fish and said, I want to turn you into a fisher of men. So what we have here is a very simple man to begin with who became profound through his relationship with Jesus Christ. He is giving us these words as an eyewitness. And it is well to remember that. Because right here in the very beginning of his gospel, you have the heart of God. And the heart of God is this, that men would come to know him. And he has chosen to lead men to himself through the witness of those that already know him. God has chosen to save men and women through the testimony of those men and women that know him personally already through his son, Jesus Christ. Here are the words of an eyewitness. Here are the words of a man who knew Jesus Christ personally. And this is the way that God has ordained that the faith would be passed on. It goes on from faith to faith, on the principle of faith to faith, to those who would believe by faith. I love the example of when John the Baptist was just preaching his heart out, and he's standing there and testifying, and he says in John 1.34, if you'd like to just turn over, you can look at it with me. In John 1.34, John the Baptist says, And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. And again, the next day, John stood with two of his disciples. These are two of his guys that he's been training. And looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. Then the two disciples who heard him speak went and followed Jesus after his testimony. That's how it happens. We are called of God to tell what we know. We are called of God to point other men and women to Jesus Christ. And let's just remember, as we see John doing it with us here, let's remember that that is our calling as the light of the world. Have you shared Christ with anyone recently? This is the way God has ordained it. The great prophet John the Baptist stood with his own followers and he says, Here, guys, this is what it's all about. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one to follow. And they leave John. He's now losing his own followers because they're following Jesus. But he understood that's what it was all about. And he was fulfilling his ministry. John then fulfills his ministry here. Could you turn in your Bible to the epistle of 1 John, chapter 1 to verse 1? We see this again, same writer. And we see again he is making such an effort to do what he knew God had called him to do. Even down at the end of his life, late in life. He's testifying of Christ that others may come to know him. 1 John chapter 1, in verse 1, he says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled, concerning the word of life, the life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life, 
which was with the Father and was manifested to us, that which we have seen and heard we declare to you. Why? That you may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. He's saying, I'm writing that you might really come to know Him in a deep personal way. That is why he's writing in his gospel here. You can turn back to the gospel of John. The man's heart constantly beat with the desire to see other people come to know Jesus Christ. And I pray to God that as we study this gospel, that much of his great passion will pass from these words into us. And that we will go forth with a genuine concern to see, Lord, I want to be used to lead others to you. God, don't let me just pass into some kind of an apathetic state as a Christian where I no longer tell others about you. Some of you were so excited about Jesus in the beginning of your Christian life, you went out and you told everybody. Have you continued to do that? Listen, you might say, but I don't have any more friends that don't know Jesus. I witnessed to them all in the beginning and now all my friends are Christians. And the other ones, they don't like me anymore, so they're not my friends anymore. Well, that may be the case. If that is the case, it's time to get to know some people that don't know Christ. It's time to become friends again with some sinners and to share Christ with them. God help us that we don't become a bunch of Pharisees that become so holy, quote, holier than thou that we cannot mingle with sinners and share Christ with them as John did. Well, we see him sharing his personal testimony here. And he said that this was his intention at the end of his gospel in chapter 20, verse 31. This is where we ended up last time. He said, But these are written, these things, I have written for this end, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So John just simply states here what he knows to be true. He doesn't come in with any big argument against the heresies of his day. He just begins with this assertion about Jesus Christ. I see basically there's four things that I want to draw out of the first five verses with a little help from verse 14, which we will add in along the way. We're going to talk here about the deity of the Word. We're going to talk about the incarnation of the Word, the creation through the Word, and the life of in the Word. Of course, all of these point to who Jesus Christ was in the mind of John at that time and who he is today in all reality. But let's begin by talking about the deity of the Word here. We find it in verses 1 and 2. I want to give you basically three things out of these two verses. We're going to spend, in fact, all of our time right here. First thing I want you to understand that is being said here is that He is eternally God. We're talking about Jesus Christ as the Word and that He is eternally God. Look at verse 1. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now we come to this text... Many of us, with many years of experience as Christians, we read it, we understand who the Word is. It's no longer mysterious to us. If ever it had a mystique, it's pretty much gone by this time. It is amazing to me how much truth is packed into these two statements here. And you have to realize that John wrote this gospel in some senses for all of those that did not yet know who Jesus Christ, he said, because I've written that you might know who He is, believe upon Him and become saved. So he's writing to those people in his day that would pick this up and read it, and in the process of reading, come to know Christ. It is, in a sense, the longest and greatest and best tract about Jesus Christ that has ever been written. 
And so here, if you can understand that coming into it, he uses these terms. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. If you look at it that way, at first glance it seems to be rather peculiar terminology. And yet it is rich with meaning. J.C. Ryle is one of my favorite commentators, and he had these words to say about these first few verses here. He said, Nowhere in the Bible shall we find such clear and distinct statements about our Lord Jesus Christ's divine nature. In no portion of Scripture is it so deeply important to notice each word and even each tense employed in each sentence in the original language. In no portion of Scripture do the perfect grammatical accuracy and verbal precision of an inspired composition shine out so brightly. It is not, perhaps too much to say, that not a single word could be altered in the first five verses of St. John's Gospel without opening the door to some heresy. The first verse of St. John's Gospel, he goes on to say, in particular, has always been allowed to be one of the sublimest verses in the Bible. The ancients used to say that it deserved to be written in golden letters in every Christian church. And then he says this, it has well been said to be an opening worthy of him whom Jesus called a son of thunder. I love that. This is a profound section of the Bible. This is not just another section of the Bible. It is deeply profound and every word counts here. I want you to realize that going in. And thus, I think the best way to approach this text is with a, basically a historical word study. We're just going to have to go through and look at all of the key words and these first few statements here to understand what John is saying to us. And specifically as we begin about how he is eternally God. In the beginning was the Word. Let's talk about what he means by this phrase, the Word. John here uses the Greek term logos and has become a pretty familiar term with us. And let me tell you what it basically means in the simplest sense. It has the idea of a word uttered by a living voice. It embodies a conception or an idea. It is the idea of saying what is declared, a thought, a declaration, a weighty saying. It is the idea of speaking forth a thought. That is the simplest meaning of the word logos. Now, as John uses this Greek term logos, I want you to realize that he is blending two separate schools of thought because he's reaching out to the Greek mind and he's reaching out to the Jewish mind at the same time while he opens up his gospel. Thus, he draws on contemporary thought. In other words, this term logos meant something to the Greeks. If you were a Greek, you knew nothing of Jesus, and you came to read the first verse of the Gospel of John, and you saw the term logos, you'd go, oh, I know that term. Already you'd have kind of a good feeling, like, I know where this guy's going. The Greeks used the term. We know that as early as 600 years before Jesus Christ, as early as 600 years before Jesus Christ, a Greek philosopher by the name of Heraclitus used the term logos to designate what the Greek philosophers understood as the divine reason or plan which coordinated the changing universe. In other words, if you were a Greek philosopher and you looked up at the stars at night and you thought about how all of this came into being and you looked around at the creation, the Greeks understood in their philosophy that there was some form of reason behind it. They were smart enough to observe that there was order in the universe, that there had to be a reason behind it. They called that reason Lagos. That's the term they used to describe what was behind the intelligent reason that was behind the universe. 
So that is the Greek thought, basic usage in Greek philosophy at that time. This term then meant something to the Greeks. But the term meant something also to the Jews and really something totally different. The Jews used this term. If you could go back in your mind, at the time of Jesus, when they would read the Bible in the synagogue, when they would study the Bible and read it openly, you must understand that at that time, in the land of Palestine, the land around Jerusalem, the land of the Jewish people, that they did not speak the Hebrew language. The average common Jew did not speak the Hebrew language. They couldn't read it and they couldn't speak it and they couldn't understand it when it was spoken. The average Jew spoke Aramaic, some form of Greek, but commonly Aramaic. So that when they would have their meetings in the synagogue and read the Bible, they might read a little bit of it in the Hebrew at first, but at that point it was basically like a Latin Catholic Mass. How many of you grew up Catholic? Just go ahead and raise your hand. Just about all of you. <laughs> A great portion of you anyway. But you remember going to Mass when they would read the, the Mass in Latin? And you would sit there and wonder what in the world was going on? And wonder how this could affect your soul? At that point in time with the Jews, they would go to the synagogue and at first they would read much of the word in the Hebrew, but at that point it was like the Latin Mass, they couldn't understand any of it. So in an effort to reach the people with their own scriptures, now that they didn't speak the language of their own scriptures, they developed what was called the Targum. The Targum. And the Targum was another translation that they would use to read out loud, orally, to the Jewish people in their own language of the day so they could understand it. Now what they did then in the Targum is they made some changes, specifically dealing with how they would render the name of God. So when they would encounter the Lord in the Old Testament, reading it out in their scriptures, reading it now in the Targum translation, they would often change from saying Lord, they would change to say the Word. That was a change that they made during that day. So the Jews during the time of Jesus, and even before the time of Jesus, were already using the Greek term Lagos to describe God, God Himself. In fact, William Barclay points out that uh, in one of the Targums, the Targum of Jonathan, the word Lagos appears 320 times. That is not to say every time it's referring to God, but it was in use, and some of the times it was referring directly to God. Let me give you an example. In a rendering from the Targum, one of the Targums of Exodus 19.17, it reads this way, Moses brought forth the people out of the camp to meet the Word of God. Rather than saying to meet the Lord, they put to meet the Word of God. So here you have this term logos. John draws upon this Greek term. There is a Greek understanding of the term. There is a Hebrew understanding of the term. He's reaching out to both because basically he had the Greek world and the Hebrew world and that was the end of it. The Jews in their little narrow world and the rest of the world is basically Greek in terms of thought at that time. That reaches then everybody and that's his intention. John uses the Greek term and he draws on contemporary thought. But he goes beyond that. And what he does is, by using the term, he introduces a distinctly Christian thought. A Hebrew reader comes, a Jewish reader comes, he reads it, he understands a little bit of what it means, this word logos. But John takes it beyond and he attaches the term to Jesus Christ. I say that because the other writers, the other gospel writers, do not refer to Jesus as the Word. 
They get very close, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John at time, but it's John that does it. He does it in his epistle. He does it in his writing of the Revelation. It is, it is something unique to John. So John calls him the Word. He is effectively saying this. Say, you Greek readers, you want to know who that great reason is behind the universe? You want to know who your Lagos is in your thinking that put this all together? I'll tell you who it is. And his name is Jesus Christ. He is the Lagos you've wondered about. You Jewish people who have used the term Lagos to refer to your God, may I say to you that your God has come to this earth and his name is Jesus Christ. That is his intention. In Revelation 19.13, John writing speaks of Jesus. He says he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the Word of God. Jesus Christ becomes the expression of God to man. Jesus Christ becomes the revelation of God to man. Jesus Christ takes the thoughts of God and he makes them audible to man. Jesus Christ takes the will of God himself and to wondering man he makes it intelligible, he makes it understandable so that the human race can understand what God thinks. Jesus told us what God thinks. The human race can understand what God's will is for every one of us as individual human beings because Jesus told us what God's will is. He takes the thoughts and the will of God and he expresses them out to the human race. The Bible tells us that Jesus Christ came and He opened His mouth and He spoke things that had never been heard since the foundations of the world, never been uttered. And this is why men would listen to Him preach. You come to the end of His preaching in places like the Sermon on the Mount, the people are astonished when He's all done. They've never heard anything like this. They've never had God revealed like this. He is the Word of God. He is the expression of God to the human race. And that is what John means when he takes this term logos and applies it to him. So we understand what he means by this phrase, the word. Now, let's talk about what he means by this phrase, in the beginning. Look at John 1.1 1, 1 again. In the beginning was the word. In the beginning was the word. Now, this phrase, the beginning, simple Greek word, arche, it has to do with a start, a corner, a foundation, this kind of thing. And John says, in the beginning. Now that's something every mind can relate to. But he doesn't want your mind to stop there. He doesn't want your mind to stop there. He doesn't want you to think that Jesus had a beginning. That is not his point at all. In the beginning was the Word. He doesn't want you to think there was a time when the Word began to be. What he wants to do is take your mind back to the beginning and then go farther than that. We can all go back to the beginning. You can go back to the beginning of the Bible. Genesis, in the first chapter, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the universe. We can go back that far. Well, in the beginning, he is saying, was the Word. And what he wants you to do is go back beyond the beginning and know that beyond the beginning was the Word. And this is brought out if you examine the word that follows this phrase, the beginning. It's just a very simple word, three letters. In the beginning, do you see the next word that comes? was, was. This little word right here, this, the word translated was in the Greek, you don't get the dynamic of it in the English, but it is very important in the Greek. Very simple Greek word transliterated into the English, en, just two letters. It's found in the Greek here, in these verses, in the imperfect tense. What that means is that it represents a continual or a repeated action. 
So you go back in your mind to the beginning. Then you go on beyond that, and what you find is something of a continual existence. That, that is the thought. The word here refers, this uh, Greek term refers to the word in a continuous state. The word being Jesus Christ is a reference to Jesus Christ in a continuous state. It is the idea of an existence that transcends and extends beyond the borders of time. In the beginning was. In the beginning there was an existence that transcended and went beyond and above the borders of time and it was going on out there actually before the beginning. That's the thought. Let's read the text again. Look at John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. So that what you have is in the first sentence here three times you come face to face with this imperfect tense. In each case, when you see was, it sets before the reader not something past, present, or future, but something ongoing, something continuous. And so it's a verb in the Greek that takes you into the realm of the timeless, takes you beyond the time zone, you might say. So what is John saying to us? He's saying this. Beyond a shadow of a doubt, he is saying this. The Word, Jesus Christ, the Word did not have a beginning. The Word, Jesus Christ, will never have an ending. The Word, Jesus Christ, belongs to eternity. He is outside the bounds of time and His existence. And that is why you read in Colossians 1.17, He is before all things, and by Him all things consist. You see, when there was a beginning, He was already there. That's the thought. And He had always been there forever. That's the thought. And so you go out as far as you can go. This kind of thinking, I told you John gets deep. This kind of thinking is initially hard for us. Some of you can't even follow as far as we've gone so far. It's initially hard for you to go out beyond the beginning. We can go back in our minds, I think, a century or two. We can go back in our minds, some of us, a millennium or two. Any of you ever studied astronomy? Ever been fascinated with the study of the stars? Not even one. <laughs> Suddenly a number of you got honest. I'm fascinated with the study of the stars. Some of you have studied that, and if you have studied that at all, you'll find out that astronomers become accustomed to thinking in terms of billions of years to be able to relate to the vastness of the universe. If you're an astronomer, you can think in terms of billions of years. Well, we are being asked here to go back beyond the beginning to no beginning at all. That's kind of disquieting to some of us. John says when we think of Jesus, that's where we must begin. We must go back to a dateless past, a time before time, to a Jesus Christ who is pre-existence, who always was before the creation of the universe. And so in the beginning was. In the beginning he always was. In the beginning he had been there forever already. This is the depth John brings to us. And so we must think of Jesus as never having begun at all. That's the thought. He is eternally God. That is why Hebrews 13.8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, if you're wondering why I'm belaboring some of these issues, I'll tell you why. You will never understand the fullness of the Gospel of John if you don't understand these first verses. You must understand every word that I'm saying to you here if you're to grasp the fullness of the entire Gospel. So don't let yourself drift in any of this. Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, echoing the same truth. John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word. Long ago, a 
great saint by the name of Basil put it so well when he said, Those two terms, beginning and was, are like two great anchors, which the ship of a man's soul may safely hold on to, whatever storms of heresy may come. That's so good. That's so good because all the heresies that have come our way have to do with the deity of Jesus Christ. They turn him into something other than what the Bible and what John here declares him to be. I want you to notice from the very first sentence in the Gospel of John, you are brought face to face with eternity. That is important because we now live within a time-space framework. We relate to life through this whole thing of time. But you see, God exists eternally outside of time. And someday, every man and woman is going to relate to God in that place outside of time in an eternal relationship of some kind. And nothing could be clearer in the Bible than this, than the truth that what you do with Jesus Christ in this life, this Word who was in the beginning, is going to determine permanently where and how you spend your eternity. And what you believe about Him, whether He is God come in the flesh or not, is going to determine where and how you spend eternity. You cannot say, Oh, I believe in the Father. I know He's God. And I sort of believe the Holy Spirit is God too. But I don't believe Jesus is God. I believe He was the Son of God. He was a man. He was a perfect man. He was a great teacher. That's what I believe. Well, that's not enough. If that's what you believe and you die that way, you will go straight into everlasting darkness once you sit and are judged by Jesus Christ who is God. It is crucial, the Bible couldn't be any clearer, that what you do with Jesus Christ is going to determine how and when and where you are going to spend your eternity. And so we read, in the beginning was the Word. What have we seen so far concerning Jesus Christ, referred to here as the Word? We have seen that He is eternally God. Next thing I want to show you here is that He is equally God. Equally God. John 1.1 again. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. With God. Now what this suggests to us then is the plurality in the Godhead. What it says to us, and really there is a sense in which I'm taking part of the truth at the end of the statement, the Word was God, and I'm bringing it back, almost a backward reasoning as we come in here. But it's so obvious because it's there at the end of the sentence. But here is the plurality of the Godhead. There are those people that only believe in God the Father. There are those Jesus-only people that only believe in Jesus. And yet the Bible is very clear that there is a trinity. There are those that question that, that will say, where do you see that in the Bible? Where do you see the plurality in the Godhead? Well, we see the plurality in the Godhead here. This is not a statement about the trinity, but it suggests plurality in the Godhead. That's a good starting point. Because here is the Word who is God, and He is with God. I think John perhaps had in mind some of the early parts of Genesis when he wrote this. You see the plurality of the Godhead in Genesis. In Genesis 1.26, at the creation of man, then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Pretty fascinating terminology. Suggests the plurality in the Godhead. In Genesis 3.22, at the fall of man, at the, you read that God says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us. Plurality in the Godhead, reference to the Trinity. 
In Genesis 11:7, at the Tower of Babel, when God confounded the languages of the people, God said, Come, let us go down and there confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. Come, let us go down. When we read that He was in the beginning with God, it suggests the plurality of the Godhead. Furthermore, it suggests the distinct personage of Christ in the Godhead. The Word was with God. Now there are a number of Greek terms that we read in our Bible simply translated with. I don't know, maybe nine, maybe more. You see the uh, frailty of the English language, the inadequacy to express certain things in that. We have the word with. In the Greek, there are many terms that come to us translated as with, but they mean a lot more than what we might think. Well, anyway, when you read this, he was with God. The idea conveyed here is that Jesus is one of those persons in the plurality of the Godhead, and it carries the idea of this with, it carries the idea of being towards with regard to. In other words, the meaning here is face to face with God. So here is God, God the Father, shall we say, and here is Jesus Christ, the Word, and He's face to face with God. In the beginning was, long before the beginning, in eternity past, in a timeless existence, the Word was face to face, separate from, but face to face, and yet one with God. Pretty heavy, huh? This is inter-Trinitarian thought we are venturing into here. Face to face with God, it is a clear statement on the unique person of the second member of the Trinity, distinct from God the Father and distinct from the Holy Spirit. It's a very powerful statement. So we see that He is eternally God. We see that He is equally God and distinct in His person. And then we see in the second and the third thing I want to show you here in the same verse, He is essentially God. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. If you come to me and you say, I don't know where the Bible says that Jesus is God. I would like to take you right here and say, does it get any clearer than this? In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. Well, how do you know that's Jesus? Are you wondering? Then look down at verse 14. For all those wonderers, John is so concerned that there would be no wondering. So in verse 14, he says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So just in case you're wondering if he's really referring to Jesus when he talks about the Word who is God, a distinct member of the Godhead, there is no doubt at all left when he says the Word became flesh. And it is a very, just a very simple Greek term for flesh. It means he actually became a man. And with one sweep of the pen, he wipes out all of the Gnostic heresies that said and implied that Jesus Christ was some kind of a phantom being. Because the Gnostics believed that all matter was evil. So God could never come in, in the body, a real body of a man that had material that was real flesh because that would be evil. So Jesus was then an appearance of a man, but not a real man. And thus, 
he wipes away that heresy with one stroke of his pen when he says the word became flesh and he dwelt among us in his epistle. He says in the very opening statements, we handled him, we touched him. This is the guy that laid his head on Jesus' shoulder. He was so close to him at the Last Supper. So if you've wondered, where does the Bible say that Jesus Christ is God? How can you say that to me? Wonder no more. It is all as plain as it could possibly be. Here in the opening statements of the Gospel of John. In Colossians 2.9 it says, For in Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. You know what that means? That means then everywhere else. If it please the Father, as the Bible says, that in Him all fullness should dwell, you know what that means? That means then everywhere else you're only going to find emptiness. If you say, well, I'll find my own way in life, you'll find emptiness. If you say, well, I'll take an Eastern religion, don't all ways, don't all paths lead to God? Isn't one path as good as another path? Can't I take one religion? Aren't they all good? Can't, isn't it multiple choice? Can't we pick and choose? They all lead to emptiness except Jesus Christ. Every way to get to God is empty and will lead you to a dead-end street except Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus Christ said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. And you must deal with these things. These are eternal truths we are dealing with here. You cannot just listen to them and let them go. If you say, I'll just deal with this later, I'll think about this as I grow throughout my life. Someday I might make a decision. Someday it might never come for you. You could die of a heart attack tonight. Boom, be dead. And never wake up again in this life. Having rejected Jesus Christ by simply not doing anything. You see, to make no decision is to make a very definite decision. That you're not going to serve Him right now. That's very definite. Oh yes, maybe you might someday. Well, if you're not wanting to believe upon Him as the Son of God, God come in the flesh, now... You are playing Russian roulette with eternity. It's one thing to play that in life with a gun. It's another thing to play that with Jesus Christ. To play Russian roulette with your soul eternity is the greatest folly a man could ever commit. You cannot just go on putting it off. You must come to grips with the fact that Jesus Christ is God come in the flesh. And that He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That in Him all fullness dwells, and outside of Him dwells only emptiness. And that's all you'll ever find if you look anywhere else for salvation or eternal life. He is essentially God. The Word was and continues to be God. The Word is in the continuous existence as God. Clearest possible statement on the deity of Christ. You might say, well, Jesus never said He was God. You see, this is another thing that bothers me. I've always wondered, how could you say He's God? Then how could you say that Jesus is taught to be God? Then how could you say He ever said He was God? He never said He was God. Do you know that even His enemies knew that He taught that He was God? Even His enemies? Let me show you. Turn in your Bible to John, same book right here, John to chapter 5 to verse 18. Jesus says... To the Jews, he's teaching and teaching along. Finally, they come to their conclusion of what he means by his teaching. He had already said to them, before Abraham was, I am. He had said that to them. Which basically he was saying, before Abraham ever existed, 
I am, I existed. He was saying to them, I am the eternal one. I am God. We'll study that in one whole message when we get to that. But they became convinced of who he was claiming to be. And in John 5.18, that was just one statement recorded, but in John 5.18, they were sure. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him because not only did he break the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. When Jesus said God was his father, he was saying, I am equal with God. I am God. I came out from God. When you see the Bible describe Jesus as the Son of God, it's speaking of His deity. It is a reference to Jesus Christ being God. You must understand that. That is the way Jesus taught it, and even His enemies took it to be that. And that is why here the Jews were wanting to kill Him for blasphemy. And so, we read in the Bible of the deity of Jesus Christ. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. In John 14, And we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. I want to stop here for now. We have talked about how this relates to your salvation. You cannot be saved by believing in another Jesus. You might say, well, I believe in the Jesus of the Bible. I just don't believe He's God come in the flesh. I just don't believe that He really is God. Well, we have talked about why you must believe that. Now, in Galatians chapter 1, if you could turn there, we're done with the text in John. But in Galatians chapter 1 and verse 6, Paul was dealing with people that came along preaching Jesus Christ, but they had turned him into something else other than what we just studied in John. Galatians chapter 1 and verse 6. And he's marveling. He said, I marvel. That you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. The gospel is all about Jesus Christ, so here's a new Jesus. Which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of the Jesus that you have known, that you have heard, that has been preached to you. He says, but if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you, any other good news to you, then what we have preached to you, let him be accursed As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. That's pretty strong, isn't it? If you come telling me you don't believe in Jesus Christ as God come in the flesh, you have another Jesus. There are many, many Jesuses. There's only one Jesus of the Bible who saves. If you don't believe in him, you will be accursed eternally from the presence of God. Jesus who saves you is John's God and John's gospel. Chapter 1, verse 1. Now, before we finish, I want to answer a question here. How does this relate to the Jehovah Witnesses that come and stand on your doorstep and are so eager to open their own translation of the Bible and say, but look here, right here, it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was a God. The Word was with God, the Word was a God. They have taken the Bible and made their own translation Every Greek scholar that is of any note at all will tell you that you cannot take the Greek and make it say that Jesus, the Word, was a God. They have distorted the Bible. Listen to this. The Watchtower Bible and Tract Society, or Jehovah Witnesses, has always taught from its inception in 1896 that Jesus Christ was no more than a perfect man, certainly not the supreme God Almighty in the flesh. 
And that is a direct quote from one of their writings. Amplifying this, they state categorically that he was in no sense both God and man. Some insist that Jesus, while on earth, was both God and man. The Jehovah Witnesses teach this theory is wrong. That's directly from another one of their writings. By maintaining that our Lord was the first and direct creation of Jehovah God, and that prior to his earthly life he was Michael the Archangel, the Witnesses deny the very foundation of historic Christian faith. In contrast to this teaching, the Bible and Christian Church declare the full deity of Jesus Christ and His equality with God the Father. In the first verse of John's Gospel, Christ is revealed as the eternal Word of God who became flesh. He is the image of God, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. The Gospel of John states that the Word was in the beginning. It does not say the Word became or was created by God as Jehovah Witnesses teach. The Witnesses also mistranslate this text to read the Word was a God, but their translation is by both context and grammar an impossibility according to all recognized authorities on Greek grammar. And so, when they come to your doorstep and they point to their Bible and they say, but you cannot tell me Jesus was God because He's only a God, little g, it's here in my Bible, know that their Bible is lying. It is a lying translation, spawned by the spirit of error. And if you will simply believe the things we've studied tonight as being true, you can share these things with them. And then you can tell them, you know what, you can believe what you want, about God, but you are empty because you don't know Him. Because the only way you can know Him is by believing upon Him as God come in the flesh and asking Him to come into your life and forgive you personally for your sins, believing on His work that He did for you at the cross and that He rose again to give you victory over death. And if you don't believe that, you will perish eternally and go on to live eternally outside of God's presence because they believe that you go out of existence if you haven't been saved through their system. And so you take the truth that is here and you apply it to the Jehovah Witnesses, you apply it to the Mormons, you apply it to anybody who doesn't believe Jesus Christ is God come in the flesh. And anybody that doesn't believe Jesus Christ is God come in the flesh is going to hell forever. They are not going to heaven. So you make up your mind what you believe and know that your eternity is going to be weighed in the balance by that. And if you haven't made the decision yet, I encourage you to make it tonight. Give your life to God come in the flesh, Jesus Christ. Don't put it off even one more moment. You can pray a prayer in your heart right where you sit. We'll have the prayer room open as we finish. But it's time to come to Christ if you haven't done so already. And it's time to get real with yourself and honest that if you don't think He's God, that you're really not going to heaven. And He's not going to let you in as an exception. And now that you've heard this explained, He will hold you eternally accountable for this truth. So we come to study the first few verses of the Gospel of John. We find that there is much truth here. There is much grave truth. There is much meat for the soul. And that there is much, much more to be discussed because we've only just stepped into this vast ocean of truth. Let's bow, shall we, for a word of prayer. Father, we... Do thank you, God, for this time of studying your word together. And I pray, Lord, for those that do not yet know you, that right now, Holy Spirit, you would draw them, free them from the blinders that have held their souls captive for so long. Draw them unto Jesus Christ. God, come in the flesh to save their soul. May this be the day.
that they come to know Christ. May this be the hour in which you let go of your emptiness as you sit and listen to these words and allow Jesus Christ to fill you with the fullness of God and enter into a new life. Take that step now with the Lord. Father, we thank you for this truth. We're excited to go on and study the rest of this gospel. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.